Hi, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino, and I just finished having a really amazing conversation with Kelly Kitley. So let me tell you about her a little bit. She is a licensed clinical social worker and owns Serendipitous Psychotherapy, LLC, and it's on the Magnificent Mile in downtown Chicago. She's a sought-after international women's mental health expert and author who has appeared in over 100 publications, podcasts, live news, and radio, including WGN, NBC, and the Chicago Tribune, Huffington Post, self shape and is a columnist for fitness magazine recovery connection and thrive global kelly has shared her experience strength and hope on the national media outlets such as dr oz and as a tedx speaker it's so interesting she talks a little bit about the night that we met and both of us having this kind of you know like soul connection that we could feel before we even knew it and this conversation just made it even more apparent that you know gosh we are all walking around with different details to our stories but our struggles are the same like if we could just tell our story i think with just feeling words we would be telling the exact same story which i think is really interesting so i hope you enjoy this interview with kelly kitley thanks so much hello kelly how are you doing today i'm doing great thanks so much for having me on this morning yeah i'm really excited about this conversation so why don't we just jump right in and have you tell folks who you are and what you do so I own Serendipitous Psychotherapy. It is a women's mental health practice primarily. I do see men as well. And I treat couples uh, using a cognitive behavioral therapy approach as well as positive psychology and motivational interviewing. It's been a dream of mine since I was 16 years old after being treated for an eating disorder by a wonderful therapist. I had a extremely reparative relationship with, and she was on Michigan Avenue. And after mm. I had that experience, I was like, someday I too want to help people and own a private practice. So I opened Serendipitous about three years ago. And you know, nothing is linear. So there were a lot, mm -hmm. there was a lot in between, but I can say today that this is exactly the vision that I had a long time ago. And so mm. it's amazing to be living that dream. Yeah. It's funny. I'm always interested to hear people's origin stories, like how you became a therapist. Cause I feel like it's a calling and not just, we don't really just kind of wake up and like, I'm going to be a therapist because that sounds like fun, it, you know? Um, so I love that it's it's like an homage to your first treatment experience. Are there any other kind of things that that called you to the profession though? I'm curious. You know, I am a very spiritual person and have always felt a deep connection and really important to clarify, you know, not necessarily religious, but just this power greater than myself that I felt connected to that kind of guided me along the way. And growing up in a, a house above my parents' bar in Chicago, actually. Oh, wow. I would say that that was probably my first training as the oldest of five children. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that, that'll that do it in and of itself. Yeah. 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 So I was just, you know, I feel like I was just born into the world this way and, mm -hmm. you know, was always, always felt this deep connection to people and experiences and uh, all the regulars at the bar had a real liking to me and called mm. me an old soul. And so those experiences kind of shaped who I am and my role as a therapist, I believe. But it wasn't until, you know, I was in high school that I had real clarity 
that I could actually make a profession out of this. Right. (laughs) That's so interesting because I also think I was born to be a therapist and I didn't really know it. And the way The way that I think about it in terms of my childhood is I knew what people were feeling even when they weren't saying it. Oh, Um, gosh. You're giving me the chills, Sarah. Did did you feel that way, too? (laughs) I just felt I I wouldn't explain it that way, but it it resonates with me when you say that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Yeah. I mean, I just think the way that you just described it. And maybe this is just me having wishful thinking. It sounds almost like that gift that you had was celebrated and it was kind of this like joyful experience. Whereas when I think about my childhood, I think that that part of me was really threatening actually to Mm. my family system. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just, I want to know more. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, certainly, you know, there's been a huge shift in that since my autobiography Mm -hmm. was released. Oh, I bet. Ooh, girl. I want to hear about that because I have thought about writing a book and I'm like, my brother would be so fucking pissed. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it was quite the experience. I mean, my family knew I always wanted to write a book. I had kept a journal since I was 12. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the first go around when I, I started entertaining it about 10 years ago, my mom said, gosh, you know, it probably is best that you don't write a book until your dad and I are dead. Ah! Um, (laughs) Well, good thing my parents are dead. I have permission now. (laughs) But are um, they? Yeah, yeah, they they are. They are. Oh, wow. So, yeah, sorry. I know I throw it out in a way that's like super uncomfortable for people who don't have dead parents. But... (laughs) I've found that once you do have dead parents and you're in that dead parents club, you can make fun of it as much as you want. So, <laughs> but go, go on <laughs> now that I've totally uh-huh. thrown you off. Go on. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> it certainly does help. Certainly. It does in many ways. Yes. So that was my mom's reaction. I don't think my dad has ever read a book in his life. So I wasn't mm. concerned that he, he would read it. I didn't mm-hmm. think my, one of my brothers would be reading him excerpts from the book, but you know, if you sit for any family dynamics, you know, it's like we all had a different lens and we all tell a different mm-hmm. story about our experience. So I think, you know, it's not something that my family has particularly talked about it. And I, I quite honestly don't know who's read it, who hasn't. I just know mm. it created a lot of tension. And let's just say nobody was really welcoming the idea like, oh my yeah. gosh, this is so great. We're so proud of you. It was more kind of like <sighs> tiptoe, which is just kind of part and parcel of the way our family is, which is why I felt such a strong desire to to write about it and to speak about what I speak about, because I was told to kind of not talk about some of the things I went through, Mm -hmm. primarily childhood sexual abuse. You know, that was like, gosh, when I had said that it happened, it was like, well, then let's stop having you hang around that family mm. friend and that was the end that's of that's that right that, yeah. that'll solve that problem <laughs> <laughs> right yeah you know so much of my experience you know this wounded healer I love 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 that title because it was something that I struggled with for a long time mm. and now I embrace it you know that I felt like I had to keep 
quiet. And, you know, as somebody who experienced that and then an eating disorder, which isn't surprising based on that family history. Literally um, eat your feelings and (laughs) thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, and then as a woman in recovery from substance abuse, you know, a lot of this was, gosh, don't let anybody know. And and so shameful that now it's, you know, kind of like that, what you said about having your parents that are both deceased, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's uncomfortable for some people, but it's my truth. And I know it's a lot of people's truths. And so when I do say it, I think sometimes there's a relief for people. Yeah. You know, I watched your TED talk recently and that's my first reaction was thank you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, just, and I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people have said that to you and it is this relief of We need to be able to talk about these things and the pain and devastation that is caused in families when when we're told as children not to talk about painful emotions or or not to shed a light on things that don't make sense. Like we've got to talk some more off this as well, just to like (laughs) kind of trade childhood stories, because it sounds like we had similar, I guess, just the way that things were structured as far as what was to be visible and what wasn't, it sounds really similar. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that goes back to that kindred spirit that we have yeah, that connected yeah. us, you know, right away. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, were you rela- raised in the church at all? You can ask me anything, first and foremost. But, awesome. Um, Thank you. So it's interesting. So my dad, no religion, really no spoken spirituality. Mom, like devout Lutheran, um, Mm. small community in Indiana. And as we grew up in Chicago, public school really wasn't an option in the seventies. And so we Mm. went to Catholic school just because, but I loved it. And so like the, oftentimes I would go to church by myself. We just lived down the block. And it was really my decision to make my first communion and be confirmed. And so religion was never pushed on us by any means. But we learned a lot about it being in a parochial school. That's so interesting. My history being that, not that religion was pushed on us, but that it was my mother's lifeblood for sure. And that, I think, Mm. formulated the way that my mom moved through the world But obviously, some of the secret keeping, when you say that your parents owned a bar, I'm assuming someone was an alcoholic, I'm guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Might that be the case? Both, you know, and and both identify or don't, and it looks very different in both. But my mom hasn't had a drink in, gosh, maybe 30 years, but my dad is still very active. Yeah, and I ask that just because the secret keeping you know, you and I certainly know being in this business and being products of, you know, the disease that families with alcoholism and mental illness love to keep secrets because that's just how it works, right? Sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's just so interesting. I'm always trying to like continue to dig deeper and find out like, where thought processes began, you know, why the family was shaped in a certain way. And just hearing somebody else's story that feels similar but has totally different details makes it all the more complex and fascinating. (laughs) Well, and we can trace it back generations, you know, that Mm -hmm. my grandmother was an alcoholic and my grandfather on the other side and my uncle and and my great uncle, you know. And so, like, we talk about 
some of the characteristics of people who grew up in alcoholic families. And it's like, we're going generations back, which is why, you know, when I got sober a little over five years ago, I was like, I'm repeating (laughs) this cycle. And here I am with four small kids. And I said, I never wanted be this, do this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea of like, okay, well, somebody's got to break the cycle. And it feels like a huge responsibility on me, not only for my individual family, but moving forward and maybe generations back. Oh my God. Yes. Strumming my pain with his fingers. (laughs) Like I... (laughs) I mean, right? The, The thing that I heard you say is... It has to stop, right? And yeah. and the feeling of responsibility to not only heal moving forward but moving backward. Yes, like that's that's the feeling that I had my whole life is that mm-hmm. I somehow need to make a change in order to fix things that have happened in our family. Yeah. And on a good day, it's an awesome responsibility. Right. And on a bad day, I'm like, fuck this. Why me? Right. Why Right. Why do I have to be the one to do this? Right. Why do I have to be the adult in the situation? Why do I have to make different choices? Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, just because I made the choice not to have kids partially because of mm-hmm. all of the stuff that's happened in our family and because I didn't know that I could handle the responsibility of healing myself, healing, you know, my family lineage and trying to make a decent human being out of it. So (laughs) how, how do you do what you do? You take care of yourself and then you come home and take care of four tiny humans. (laughs) What? I can't, I can't even. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you put a lot more thought into it than I did. (laughs) I did. I spent probably, and my my therapist at the time would tell you, I probably spent five years just mm-hmm. talking about whether or not to have a kid. Oh, yeah. Again, like I have the chills because there are so many women I see that struggle with that, you know, in therapy. Yeah. And, I'll, and yeah. I'll get back to your question. I'm not a Oh, yeah, it. no. <laughs> I know. But, you know, you know, that idea of like, okay, I'm a woman. Is mm-hmm. this what I'm supposed to do? Yes. I'm feeling like, maybe, you know, hormonal desire, but psychologically, maybe not. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I love when somebody can get to a place of acceptance of the decision they've made, even though it may not be what they think they should be doing. Oh, yeah. You know, which is like, is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I respect that so much. But you know, in my own journey with that, my husband's one of five. I'm one of oh, five. Oh, like, good God. I can't, I can't even imagine what Christmas looks like. Oh, I can't. Yeah. yeah. It's at the Jersey Shore with my husband's intact wow. family, thank God. But, you know, there's lo- there's 20 grandkids and, you know, there's a lot, a lot of good chaos um, that comes mm-hmm. out of, you know, big families. And I was just with my sister and she has four kids for Easter yesterday. And, wow. you know, the embracing of like, a lot of love, a lot of social interaction, but it can also feel really overwhelming at times. But we knew we wanted to have big families. And, you know, it, it is. It's like I always talk about in pieces that I write and, you know, talk about when I am asked this question, like, how do I do what I do and then come home to four little souls who have their own stuff mm-hmm. too, you know, and predisposed to anxiety and, mm-hmm. you know, social conflicts and things like that, like any normal human being. But it, it is like I have to make a 
conscious shift from when I drive home from work and taking off my therapist hat, which I think, you know, it's a blessing to be able to sit with one person for an hour and just focus on what is going on in the room as opposed to (laughs) when I'm home, it's like, all four people need me at the same time. And oh right. yeah, we're trying to get homework and dinner done. But it is, you know, my kids know I'm sober. My kids know what I do for a living. And, you know, I'm probably the total extreme of what, not probably, I am, you know, we didn't <laughs> talk about anything in my family of origin. Yeah. Now we talk about everything. And it's great. It's an opportunity to see some of the things that I didn't get in what kids need. And, you know, I probably am a little over the top in some regard (laughs) as a parent and lots of flaws too, but it's good practice and it's an opportunity to practice engaging. And I learn a lot about myself as a human being, as a mom. And well, yeah, that was just triggering me to, to ask. I don't know where I learned this, if it was something we talked about in school or if I've just made it up, but I feel so that happens. So I always, that's always a caveat. I could have made this up, but I think that I heard at one point that as a parent, when your child becomes the age that you were when something significant happened, mm-hmm. you then have an opportunity as the parent to heal that wound. Obviously, not using your child, but it is the relationship with your child and watching your child navigate whatever you know situations they might be going through at the time. So I don't even know how old your kids are. So I'm I'm curious if that has been an experience for you. Huge. I think more so we have five birthdays in April. So, um, oh my gosh. Of the six of us. Wow. My oldest is turning 12. Then I have a 10 mm. year old daughter, an eight year old son, and a six year old daughter. And certainly, you know, so I have two boys and two girls. And there is a difference in terms of my responsibility to build them up. More so, my daughter's probably because of my own experience right. as a little girl and, you know, some of that childhood being robbed having had to experience some of the things I experienced at such a young age. So more so in the fact that the transference component of it, like I had done an interview after the book was released with um, Heidi Stevens from the Chicago Tribune. And she said, you know, what was the hardest part about writing the book? And Mm. there's this chapter about my own experience being 10 years old and being sexually abused and how strong of an emotion that was for me to think of myself as my daughter's age. And that having happened was just devastating to me. So to to look at it from that lens, Mm -hmm. I think hit home a lot harder for me having my own kids, where I processed it differently as a woman who didn't have kids, but then to kind of imagine myself at that age and be living with a 10 year old. I'm like, oh my gosh, just a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, That's so awesome. And I think, you know, brava for doing your work and being able to, you know, simultaneously navigate being a parent, being a healer in the healing profession and being healed at the same time. I think, you know, obviously I'm sure you do it imperfectly like any person does, but I mean, I'm sitting here as a daughter who and now now I want to cry. This is pretty crazy. But <laughs> as a daughter who wasn't seen because my mom couldn't couldn't process her own stuff on her mm-hmm. own time. Mm-hmm. And what a gift. And I just I'm grateful to you for your daughter's experience because I think 
not only are you healing yourself and you're healing them, but I think you're healing the collective at the same time. And so my 10-year-old self, I think, <laughs> is appreciating how much you care for your girls. So thank you. Oh, that means a lot. I appreciate that. Oh, and not to mention relationships, right? Like, right. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. For, oh, yeah, husbands. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, who like kind of knew what he signed up for, but, right. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah. And we met at my parents' bar. Wow. And he is not an alcoholic, but us having a good time together was a huge part of our relationship. Yeah. You know, so I'm super grateful for his ability to, you know, accept me exactly as I am. And that relationship in an, I, you know, I was 20, 20 when I met him and I'll be 40 mm. in two weeks. So think oh, of wow. how much somebody changes in that time, you know, yeah. and lots of moves and kids and sobriety came in that, you know, mm -hmm. career pressures, all of it. It's whatever, you know, it's life. It's, it's right. what everybody goes through that like when you pause, you're like, holy shit, that's a lot. <laughs> right. What does he do for work? I'm always just curious. The combo oh, that go with therapists. Oh, <laughs> well, so he's basically a therapist for himself, right? I feel he like is. that's, <laughs> I feel like that's what acting is. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, you'll have to, I'll plug his, he's about to open a yeah. show about women's mental health and really yeah uh, at victory gardens it's called letty and it's about a woman who is incarcerated and um, has children and he raises her children and then they want the mom gets out of jail and wants mm. her kids back wow so he gets it he get, and he's doing yeah. a show at goodman called support group for men so <laughs> great so he's so it, drunk you know, the kool-aid our, our worlds our worlds collide a little yeah that's so awesome well, you know, I feel like we've kind of been dancing around the the healer and the wounded healer topic just with with all of this that we've been discussing. But mm -hmm. I guess more pointedly, when you think about the word healer in terms of the work you do, does it apply? Doesn't it? What what baggage comes with it? I think it definitely applies. You know, being able to heal and before we can help somebody else heal, we need to work on ways to heal ourselves. And, right. you know, which is why I so respect colleagues in this profession who have been in the trenches and have done the work. Mm -hmm. And when I was teaching graduate students who had never been in therapy, I was like, what? Oh, girl, please. <laughs> Every please. time I say that in class, somebody yeah. like rolls their eyes and right. I'm like, you just get out of the fucking profession right now. No, if you think you don't need therapy, get out. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know, there was one one place I taught in California that it was actually a prerequisite that they Good. had to go through a year of therapy while Thank they were God. in graduate school. But I don't yeah, know how I, I would have survived grad school without therapy. Good God. <laughs> right. I would have I, I really don't know what I would have done. Oh, my God. Seriously. I, I yeah. know. You know, I think it's an awesome responsibility, but I also need to kind of keep that one foot in, one foot out because mm -hmm. I want it so badly for my clients because, yeah. because I've done the transformative work and I know how mm -hmm. exciting and, and scary and all of it it can be that, you know, I'm definitely one of those clinicians who um, needs to make sure I don't try harder than my clients. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
you know, I want mm-hmm. this for you so badly, but I'm not sure how badly you want it for yourself. Well, uh, right. I think that goes back to, you know, the the childhood piece of being able to kind of recognize things and people that maybe they can't see in themselves. I think that's the burden of it, right? That's the shadow mm. side is yeah. I see your potential and this beauty inside of you and you might not ever get there. Yeah. Because that might yeah. not be your path in this lifetime. Right. And then it goes back to the role is, you know, as the healer is you may not heal with or, you know, I don't want to say through me, <laughs> but right. this may just be one step, you know, one right. seed and being able to to provide that hope in that moment, even though that healing, you know, it's it's not like you come out the other side and you're healed. My language is I'm still healing and it's a continuous work in progress of making sure I do the work because when I'm not doing the work, then I notice a direct effect of how I am with the people that I'm trying to help, you Mm -hmm. know, whether it's a speaking engagement or as a clinician or, you know, this podcast or whatever it might be. It's like if I'm not actively doing the work at the same time, I feel like a hypocrite. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's mm-hmm. what was hard for me when I was a practicing clinician and, you know, trying to get sober. It was like, mm. you know, I had clients who read my book and they were like, were you drinking in between our sessions? <gasps> oh. You know, and I was like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I wasn't wow. a daytime drinker. I was a evening binge drinker. But still, you know, that idea of like, I was still doing the work. I was going to therapy. I was right. well aware of the fact that I would maybe someday become an alcoholic. I mean, my graduate studies was an addiction, but I don't know. I justified it, you know? So yeah, I was going through shit too while I was working with clients and doing my own therapy and trying to get sober. But, and there was a little shame in that, you know, that Mm -hmm. luckily I didn't have anybody on my caseload who was actively trying to get sober at the same time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But certainly now, like my whole caseload is people trying to get sober. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Funny how that works. Uh, Well, I'm, uh, you know, because shame is one of the areas that I really love to dig into. I'm I'm curious, was there one client who was like, were you drinking in between sessions? I'm really curious about that acute moment and how you, I mean, I'm, I'm sure in the session you probably handled it in a great way and then potentially <laughs> fell apart right afterwards. <laughs> Would you mind talking about that? No, not at all. You know, this was somebody that I particularly, you know, have a really direct, she is mm-hmm. very direct and, and and that's the way that I practice mm-hmm. as well. So it, it's a nice combination in terms of calling everything out and kind of putting everything on the table. And, and she was concerned. She was like, wait a second, your sobriety date is March mm-hmm. 10th. And I started seeing you like January of that year. Were mm-hmm. you drinking, you know, were you drunk during our sessions? Oh, And of course, in that, not of course, but in that moment, I felt like I wanted to defend myself. Like, oh right. no, I, wa- I, w- right. I was hung over, but I wasn't right. drunk, right. you know? And then feeling like, oh my gosh, was I, was I not a good therapist during that time? And oh, that just she- hurt my gut. Oh. <laughs> you know, and it was here at this point, by the time she said that we've been working together for about four years, because nobody knew I was sober until the, my book came out a year ago this month. Mm -hmm. And so some of my clients have read my book and some have not because Mm -hmm. there are people who want to assume that I am all knowing and perfect and, (laughs) you know, and just sit across from them and they can 
fantasize about who I am in my personal life. Mm -hmm. And then there's other people who are like, oh my gosh, you really understand, you know, where I've been or what I've been through, or you have had a similar experience, even though, you know, we may feel differently about it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, I mean, just saying that interaction that this woman and I had kind of brings me back to that place of feeling like, oh my gosh, (laughs) yeah, who was I during that time? And could I be a better therapist to her now than I was then? But she was getting something because she came for four years every Mm -hmm. week. But yeah, that idea of like, "Mm, was I a fraud? Oh, that's so honest and vulnerable. And that is what encapsulates the whole wounded healer concept, right? Because Mm -hmm. like you said, healing is a process. We are never completely healed. And part of that process is going to be potentially messier than other parts, right? Like, is being someone who binge drinks any different from somebody who has depression that's that's not managed, you know, and can show up in the room? And I don't think that there's any difference than that. And I certainly know a lot of therapists do struggle with, maybe they struggle with their anxiety outside of sessions. And we've all got something that we're in recovery from. Yes, I do believe that. And There are people in our profession who believe strongly in, you know, not sharing any, any personal Mm -hmm. information and keeping a really strict boundary on that. And for me, I think that that does our clients a disservice. I agree. Certainly I'm not, (laughs) the session is not about me and we're not talking about my healing and all of that, but certainly if it comes up to be able to answer in a real and authentic way you know, and not feel like I have the stock trained response to that. Well, I'm curious to know why you're asking that. Oh, that's the most (laughs) bullshit answer. I want to smack people when they do when they pull that shit out. No, (laughs) be a real person. (laughs) Uh, For me, what I love, you know, I'm not really good at small talk. Me neither. Right. Just go deep. (laughs) You know, like, and and, I, and I'm working on that. I'm working on like, you know, some people just want to like shoot the shit and not like have to talk about like what's really going on or how they're really oh, doing. I don't want to hang out with those people. <laughs> well, <laughs> certainly, you know, people like duck when they see me come for after school pickup, you know, like, oh, oh shit, here comes a therapist. She might, she might know something's going on. <laughs> but being able to kind of respect that and know that, you know, people are sometimes more comfortable having some of those conversations and certainly in the right setting, of course. Mm -hmm. But part of what drew me to this profession as well was, yeah, there's bullshit sometimes when people can't be get honest, but to be able to have that deep connected experience with someone Mm -hmm. is as spiritual as it gets. Yeah. For me, you know, that I want to have those conversations in my day to day life. In my personal life, but a lot of people can't show up to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. But in the forum of therapy, we have two agreed people who want to go there. Yes. (laughs) So that's, that's where the transformation happens. That's one of the big reasons I always tell people I wanted to work in addiction mm-hmm. in particular is because I wanted to be around people who are striving to be the best version of themselves at all times. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what I think therapy is and recovery is. And I'm exactly the same. I don't do denial at all. And I've 
It's interesting. Literally cannot do it. I kind of wish that I had. It's hard not to be able to live in denial. It is. And I have lost so many relationships and friendships. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and now when I look back on on the themes of those, you know, I don't want to be all like on my high horse and like, well, they were in denial and I was seeing the truth. But sure. But they could function in a way that didn't feel true and authentic to them. And I knew it and I felt it and I couldn't tolerate it. And so I had to leave or more likely it was a dramatic ending of a relationship, which is (laughs) how most of my ended relationships went. Mm. But yeah, I want to be with people who are desperate for the truth. Yeah. For themselves. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. You know, it's hard, especially, you know, I grew up in Chicago and have really long meaning time frame relationships mm-hmm. that have just significantly changed over the years, you know, yeah. and sometimes it's like, oh, what, what is it about me that I can't just like pretend mm-hmm. and deny and continuously go along? It's like, no, I've really cleaned house. Yeah. And that's a tough responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I feel like the more work I do, it gets more subtle, right? So the things that become uncomfortable now I wouldn't have even known they were happening 10 years ago because I was so busy trying to people please and make sure everyone thought I was attractive and thought I was good at what I did and all that kind of stuff. And I keep losing my train of thought. I have no idea why I was saying that, but. Because you thought, because <laughs> you said some of these things were subtle. Yeah. You know, are more subtle now. Right. And yeah. Oh. In what you can tolerate, maybe. Thank you. Such a good therapist. Because we're always like actually active listening. And so I can tell you exactly where you were, but I can't tell you where I was because I lose my own train <laughs> of thought. But yeah, the, the point was, is that as I heal at the more subtle level, I find, I find myself a little bit more lonely sometimes. Uh. Because uh-huh. the subtleties are so obvious to me now, but some other people in my life, they're not so obvious to. And again, this is not a judgment like, oh, you're doing it wrong and I'm doing it right. But right. It's, we're in different places. Like talk about our spouses, right? So mm-hmm. my husband, oh, he is the best. And his big fear, he's always said to me, he's like, I am terrified of you outgrowing me. And Uh, right. And that's that's been a fear of mine, too, because I'm so and this is my bullshit is I'm so fucking judgmental of people who aren't doing the work. Right. So (laughs) my fear. That's a knowing laugh. I know. Um, Yeah. So my fear is that I'm going to be judgmental of him. But what I've found in our relationship and all the relationships that I have that are long term that work as long as we're all honest and doing our work. Like, that's all that it it doesn't matter what level, quote unquote, you're at, even though there aren't levels. But you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how far along one is in their spiritual journey. But if you're showing up in the most, you know, I don't want to say like there's the truth, but but the truest for you, the most vulnerable, the most authentic that you can possibly be. That's that's what I'm attracted to. That's what I'm connected to. Absolutely. I don't need to measure it for you. Right. Just that you're doing it. Right. (laughs) You're willing to do it. And it it is lonely, you know, because because it's hard. It's hard to get that honest with ourselves and with other people. And I don't know. I'm just having a moment here of like, you get it. Yeah. (laughs) I know there are people who are listening who get it. And 
I don't know. I'm I'm at a loss of, of mm-hmm. words at this moment. I'm wondering, like, as we're talking about this, because for you and I, it sounds like we really have this. For me, I almost it's felt like a survival thing. Like I have to continue this path. I have to be this way because there's just there's an instinctual drive in me that says if I don't do this work, I will die. I will be obliterated. I will be annihilated. And, and, and I think that's what, for me, prevents me from being able to experience denial in a meaningful way because I know I will be obliterated if I live in that space. I'm curious for you if you have a similar feeling with that or if it's something that, like, you made a choice one day to step out of that or or what your thoughts are. I think it's a little of both. I certainly, you know— because of fear, struggled with similar things you're talking about, you know, this like this people pleasing component and Mm -hmm. wanting to be liked and saying the right things and doing the right things. And I saw how damaging that was. Mm -hmm. And how even though on the outside, I looked like I was really happy, I hated myself on the inside. Yeah. And just wanted to be maybe something or someone different than I, I was projecting. Mm. And so I'm known to be honest to a fault. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we really are sisters from another mister, girl. We really are. <laughs> and and it, uh, it eats me up when I can't be. You know, like yeah. you said, it's kind of this like, I don't really feel like I have a choice. Like I, I yeah. just have to, you know, and that's my most frustrating thing in relationships. It's like, mm-hmm. look, if with my family, it's like, Tell me how pissed you are at me about this book. Right. You know, tell me something that you're holding on to that you totally disagree with. Right. And let's have a conversation about that. The avoidance and the denial I have seen kill people. Yes. So it is, you know, and, and even with clients, you know, where they're like, well, I'm not really sure how somebody felt about me on that date. I'm like, could you ask? Right. <laughs> And there are so many people that I do try to get really honest with and they still avoid and deny. But as long as I keep showing up that way, somebody's going to join me, (laughs) you know, and then have some of those conversations that are hard to have that are just, you know, and not, and I'm not talking about conflict, you know, I'm talking about just depth. Well, I think, I think in what you're saying There needs to be a certain level of the ability to tolerate the dialectic, right? Knowing that there are two things that are opposite that are occurring at the same time, because that's that's what's inherent in conflict in families. We do have different realities and experiences of, of the truth of what happened, and they're all true. My brother had a really loving relationship with my mom that that was completely mm. unconditional love. And though there were flaws, of course, you yeah. know, it was so different than my experience with my mom. And I know that my mother loved me, but it didn't feel like love. Those two things exist at the same time. And that's mm. the conversation I could never have with my mom is that even though you're not intending these things to happen, this is how I feel. And when when the people in our lives can't hold those two opposites, that's why we stay in denial and aversion, right? Right. And, you know, my mom has been really great about accepting that piece of it. You know, that is your viewpoint. That is mm-hmm. your opinion. I mean, we kind of go in waves of the intensity of our, our mm. relationship. But being able to say, yeah, I'm this and I'm also this and this person may trigger this inside of me, which is why I respond that way. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe your mom. Well, I don't need to psycho. <laughs> no, do it. I love it. Do it. Bring it. You know, maybe, maybe 
you represented some things in your mother that she doesn't like about herself or that she wishes Definitely. she could be that, or you, on the nose right there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, which makes it yeah. hard to be in relationship, which is why, right. you know, pa- parental relationships, mother and father are so tough. And, you know, when mm-hmm. I do couples therapy, I'm like, think about how many fucking people are in this room. My yes. parents, your parents, your siblings, your relationships, yes. you know, it's like people are getting triggered all over the place. I know. I know. I love when clients are like, I just want to talk about what's happening now. I don't want to talk about my childhood. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. That's kind of <laughs> not how therapy works. <laughs> no, my childhood was great. It didn't affect me at all. You know, says, says the alcoholic. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> We'll get there in a couple years. Don't worry. <laughs> I try to level the playing field by telling everybody everyone's parents fucked them up. Like everybody's crazy. Everybody's fucked up. And if we can all just embrace that and try to figure out <laughs> what flavor right. of crazy we have, then it right. just it makes it all the more fun rather than this like, you know, I, I still don't understand like stigma against mental health and addiction because it's like everybody's got something. How dare people yeah. turn their nose up at someone's disorder when they've got some other disorder that we, we just might not be as obvious. Right. Or the comparison game. Like I, uh, you know, I see clients cause I don't take insurance. And so there is this certain niche that I yeah. see, you know, mm-hmm. um, lawyers, doctors who kind of come in with this idea of like, but my experience is not as bad as, Oh yeah. You know, and it's like, <laughs> but it's yours. Right. You know? <laughs> like we're just focused on how you experience that. Not if somebody didn't have food or was homeless, you right. know, I help people work through a lot of like you know, imposter syndrome and, mm-hmm. you know, not feeling good enough, even though there's this litany of things that they've, they've accomplished or, yep. you know, that their growing up experience wasn't that bad. Their parents were married, right. you know, right, right. <laughs> but they never talked to each other and they slept in different bedrooms and they never saw conflict or love or anything, you know. It's funny because that, that's just making me think like we all have this resume for our mental health, right? And if we mm-hmm. look, if we look on paper, it doesn't look like I had anything wrong in my family except for divorce, really. That's the only thing on paper that you could point to and say, oh, that was probably traumatic. Mm-hmm. But that's our resumes are not what make up our experience. And that is just like a snapshot of what people have gone through. And to compare resumes, it is so like I've heard people go both ways, like either, oh, I'm not as bad as that guy, meaning I don't deserve to feel bad for what I've gone through or I'm not as bad as that guy, which means I'm not an alcoholic or addict (laughs) or depressed person or anxious person. Right. (laughs) Right, 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 right. I like that. I'm going to use that. Don't compare my mental health resume to yours. <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny? One of my clients, we were joking because he was looking for a partner at one point and on dating sites. And he's like, wouldn't it be hilarious if we created a dating site where you put your shit out first? Ah! And I like I actually talked to some people about developing it as an app just to see what would happen. Of course you did. Of course. (laughs) And it's like, you know, so I'm bankrupt and an alcoholic and, you know, whatever, whatever the things are, like putting that out first. (laughs) 
so TM, I'm TMing it. If anyone, I didn't okay. give it a name, but don't don't <laughs> steal it from me, anybody, because maybe one day I'll actually do it. But I thought that we just we, we laughed about it forever because you know he's such a great guy, and now he's in a lovely relationship. But we just uh-huh. laughed about how on paper we can either Mm -hmm. look fine and things be terrible on the inside or it can look like shit, but you're actually a really great person. (laughs) Oh, well, and you know what? I bet if if that was the dating site or app that you created, people would pick the ones they're most comfortable with, right? Like, oh, alcoholic, bankrupt, that was my dad. Right, I know that. that. (laughs) Well, and it's funny because we fucking do pick people that way. We just don't know it until later. Uh, I really should do that. I should. (laughs) We had a name for it and I cannot remember what it was, but it was something hilarious. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Well, we're we're coming to the end of our time. I want to be really respectful because I know you are busy, busy. I feel like we talked about all the things, but is there anything that I didn't ask you that you really want to share? I do want you to like plug the title of your book, plug your TED talk, you know. All that oh, stuff. Thanks, so thanks. this this is um, the moment to plug. I'm oh, doing jazz hands over here. You can't see, but I am. Well, and you know, I just want to say, I believe that everybody has the the chip inside of them that mm. can connect with other people and that can be vulnerable and trusting and honest. And, you know, when we're awake to that, mm. that's where the beauty happens. And I mean, and just speaking about this experience and for people who are listening, you know, Sarah and I met probably a year ago at yeah. a professional's dinner and it literally like I walked in the room and I felt like your soul was like, yes, like we need to be friends. Yeah. <laughs> and then just, you know, talked to you and was like, gosh, you're so articulate and cool and savvy and, you know, just your aura and the way that you're rainbow hair. And I love it. Love it. <laughs> Thank you. I do believe everybody has that ability, but I think there's so much shit that is covering it. Mm. And so the way to get to those experiences is to uncover some of that shit or, mm-hmm. you know, the traumas or the insecurities or the fear or the anxiety or the depression or the alcoholism or, you know, whatever it is. Once yeah. we start peeling that back, and that is kind of, you know, classic psychotherapy 101, right? Like, right. let's peel back the onion. Right. But it's so true, so you know, true. and it's like, and it doesn't take, you know, 12 sessions. It takes some people 12 years, yeah. you know, but if there's a willingness and a commitment, and I think a lot of people that I've worked with over the years, you know, some people come in, they do really good work, they leave, they go see another therapist, or they come back a year later, and they're like, okay, I'm ready to do it again, you know, yeah. that it is a lifelong journey. Yeah. And I think people get frustrated when they come back after years of not seeing me of like, I can't believe I have to do this work again. Yeah. But what's the alternative? of not doing the work. Being asleep. It's like either you're awake and in pain or asleep and in pain. So I'd rather be awake. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So yeah, I re- my one year anniversary, some really exciting things coming up of releasing my autobiography of survival called Myself. It's available on Amazon. And I'm heading out to LA the day before my 40th birthday to be on Aww. Access Live. <gasps> no way! Oh. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So ah. one of my hats in my business is constantly pitching myself to media outlets. And, you know, for every hundred, they say you get one. And I think this one oh. was like for every 500. I got this one. So I'm really excited. Good for you. To share my experience, strength and hope on a national platform Mm -hmm. to 
teach people about, you know, how to heal and how to recover from sexual abuse and sexual assault. And then I'm actually headed out to Lake Forest College tonight where I did my TED Talk last year mm-hmm. called I Show My Scars So Others Know They Can Heal mm. for another sexual assault panel education component. So Mm. this month is really exciting and a lot going on. And um, I'll be speaking at the Rape Victim Advocates fundraiser in May with Tarana Burke, the Me Too founder. And I received services from Rape Victim Advocates at 21 after I was sexually assaulted on the streets in Chicago and have reconnected with them 20 years later. And they're still doing amazing work and they really you know, saved my life at a time that mm. nobody understood or validated and right. victim blamed and all of that. So there are resources out there that are phenomenal and they are one of them. Ugh. Well, thank you so much. This has been so awesome. And we definitely have to find more time somehow in our lives to <laughs> have more conversations because clearly we could just talk forever. Sarah, it is awesome. What a great way to start off the month and start off the week. Yay. I'm so glad to know that we're doing really good work together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Take care of yourself and have an awesome day. Thanks, you too. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with Kelly Kitley. It was really a pleasure to chat with her. And, you know, as I'm sure everyone could tell, she mentioned in there that we don't do small talk very well. So we kind of just like jump right in. I think dead parents (laughs) entered within the first like, you know, couple minutes of the interview because that's how we roll. So thanks again to Kelly for being willing to be a guest today. You can find Kelly on Facebook at Serendipitous Psychotherapy. You can also find her on Instagram at Kelly Kitley, and that's Kelly spelled with an E-Y, and Kitley is K-I-T-L-E-Y. Thanks again to Andrea Klunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the photo for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. You can find even more information about Kelly Kitley at my website, www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast, or you can go to bit.ly slash wounded healer. You can find conversations with a wounded healer on Facebook and Twitter and Spotify and all those fun places. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye now. Mm-hmm.